tonight we are going to read about how God makes a way. Okay. This is about the Israelites and crossing the Red Sea. Moses and God's people escaped out of Egypt and into the wilderness. They didn't know the way, but God knew the way and he would show them. I will bring you to a new home, a special land. God promised them. I will look after you. I am with you. God sent a big cloud for them to follow a pillar of smoke stretching up to the sky. It moved in front of them as they walked and shaded them from the blazing heat of the day. And when it was time to rest, it stopped. And all through the cold desert nights, it kept them warm, glowing like a fire. God led his people through the desert to the edge of a great sea. They were just wondering how to cross it when suddenly they heard a terrible thundering and pounding. It sounded almost like horses' hooves. They shaded their eyes to look back and screamed. It was. It was Pharaoh and his army coming after them. Pharaoh had changed his mind again. Get my slaves back. He screeched and charged into the desert after them with 600 of his fastest horsemen and every single chariot in Egypt. What were God's people going to do? In front of them was a big sea. It was so big, there was no way around it. But there was no way through it. It was too deep. They didn't have any boats, so they couldn't sail across. And they couldn't swim across because it was too far. And they would drown. And they couldn't turn back because Pharaoh was chasing them. They could see the flashing swords now glinting in the baking sun and the dust clouds and chariot after scary chariot surging towards them. So they did the only thing there was left to do. Panic! We're going to die, they shrieked. Don't be afraid, said Moses. But there's nothing we can do, they screamed. God knows you can't do anything, Moses said. God will do it for you. Trust him and watch. But there's no way out, they cried. God will make a way, Moses said. And another minute and it would have been over. But then the strangest thing happened. God made the pillar of smoke move. It moved behind his people and hid them from the Egyptians. Then God sent a strong east wind to blow all night long. It blew the water on it blew the water on the big sea. It blew it to the left and it blew it to the right until it blew into two towering walls of water. And there, right through the middle of the sea, a muddy pathway opened up and God's people walked across on dry land. When the Egyptians tried to follow, the walls of water crashed back down on them and swallowed them up. God's people were safe. They danced and laughed and sang and thanked God. When there had been no way, God had made a way. Many years later, once again, God was going to make a way where there was no way. From the beginning, God's children had been running from him in hiding. God knew his children could never be happy without him, but they couldn't get back to him by themselves. They were lost. They didn't know the way back, but God knew the way. And one day he would show them. All right, guys, you can go back to your parents if you want. Okay. And the rest, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is from Exodus 19, one through six. 
On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They sent out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. It is so good to see all of your bright and shining and some masked faces, but it is so great to be here with you in person. Man, I am so thankful for technology that has kept us connected to uh, sermons. I'm so thankful for our music folks that have posted videos leading us in music. I've so enjoyed singing with my family. Um, During school, we would do hymns in the morning, and now we've been singing on Sunday afternoons as we watch the sermon. And it's been great with a side order of crazy, keeping my boys um, kind of corralled during the sermon. I'm so thankful for those things, but man, it wasn't the same. We are made to worship together. And I'm so thankful for community groups. I'm so thankful for Zoom. I'm so thankful for all the ways we've been able to stay connected, but it is just not the same. It's so great to be here with all of you and worship with all of you and submit to God's word with all of you and be outside together, even though it's a tad warm. Um, But it's just so great to see so many of you. There's many of you that I have not seen in living color in 20 weeks. So it's so great to see all of you here. And it's so great to open up God's word with you. Man, another thing I'm thankful for is God's word being so timely. There have been so many sermons in this series as we go through Exodus that the Lord planned before all of this started that have been perfect for where we find ourselves. So I'm I'm very grateful for the timeliness of God's word. Before I jump into the sermon tonight in Exodus 19, I want to thank a team of people that made this service possible. Um, They actually have been working for a few weeks now to plan when we were able to, Lord willing, come back live. They had planned a whole plan for having inside services, and then we moved outside, and we have been working through outside plans. But there is a team of volunteers that has made all of this possible and helped it run smoothly. And from the beginning, we talked about how we could make this a worshipful safe and loving environment for everyone. And this group of people has done that in everything that they've done. So uh, Victoria and I um, co-led this team, but on the team were Marissa, Tiana, Kathy, James, Sarah, Cade, and Bekela. And they have done an amazing job of bringing their expertise and their experiences to the table and serving all of you behind the scenes for running on weeks now. And um, any great ideas that went into this came from this team. So I am so thankful for them. And so let's give them a round of applause for their hard work. As I said, God's word is timely, and this is a timely word and a timely scripture because what we are looking at is God's covenant 
with his people. We have seen over the last few weeks, and we saw in the story that Marissa just read for all of us, that God delivered his people. But he also made them into a people. He delivered them from an enemy, but he delivered them for something. He invited them into covenant relationship with himself. And really, when we come together here, we are celebrating who God is, but we are also remembering that he is making us into a people set aside for his purposes. We come together and we remember what God has done and we look forward to what God will do. And so it's fitting that we should talk about as we reconvene here together in person, what it looks like to be the people of God. If you're a believer, if you're a Jesus follower, you know that one day you will be reunited with your Savior in heaven. But we are left with the question that we find each and every day, what do I do now? What do I do with my life? What do I do with the opportunities? What do we do as God's church now as we are awaiting that day when we will be reunited with our Savior? If you are not a Jesus follower, then you have that question from the outside looking in. You look at Jesus followers and you may say to yourself, you know, I don't really know what it's all about, or I don't understand how they are different than me besides that they go to church once a week, or maybe they're in a small group. Just as Marissa just read, thus far in Exodus, we've seen God miraculously deliver his people from their enemies, but he was also delivering them to a covenant relationship with himself. And that's what this scripture is all about. So please turn with me to Exodus 19. If you um, want to turn there, you can. We know it's tough to take notes outside, so we have actually put the notes online. So that same link where you saw the lyrics, there's also, you can click on a tab and a PDF comes up, and that's a sermon outline that has every scripture and every kind of headline that I will um, mention in this sermon. So if you want to look back or if you want to follow along, you can pull up those sermon notes now. As we enter into Exodus 19, these, um, this chapter, and really 59 chapters in Scripture, 59 chapters in Scripture cover an 11-month period where the people of God are encamped around Mount Sinai. 59 chapters devoted to 11 months where God is forming for himself his people, and he is telling them what kind of God he is and what kind of people he expects them to be as his people. So we'll take a look here at the verses that Marissa just read, and we will talk about them every few verses. So Exodus 19, verses 1 through 3. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to be with God. The first thing of note here is that God asked his people to encamp around this mount, and then he invited Moses to come up and meet with him. This is really the only invitation of its kind since the Garden of Eden where God is inviting one of his people to come and commune with him. Let's stop and think for a minute about what we know of Moses and what we know of the Israelites and what we know of the story of Exodus to this point. And I want us to answer the question, based on what merit 
is Moses being invited into the presence of God? Is he being invited into the presence of God based on his own merit, his own actions, how great the Israelites are or how great of a leader Moses has been to this point? We clearly know if we have been following along in this series that that is not the case. Moses, from the very beginning, said, can you send my brother instead of me? Because I'm not well of speech. The people of God are delivered by God and immediately doubt his power. They get across the Red Sea and see him deliver them in this spectacular way, and they worship him, but then they start grumbling that they don't have anything to eat. They beg to go back to Egypt even. We see God's people and Moses And it is not based on their merit or their actions whatsoever that God would invite them into relationship with them. And it's by no merit of his own that Moses would be invited to come and speak with God. Most of you probably know this, but Steve and I have offices here at Old Brick. And our office is just right down the stairs there. And anybody can stop by anytime. And if we're there, we're going to welcome you and we're going to say, come on in and we're going to chat. We have nice comfy chairs there that you can come and sit in. And uh, if you make an appointment, you'll know we're free, but you don't have to. You can just stop in anytime. And the reason for that, the reason you don't need an appointment is because we're just us. We're just Jason and Steve. We're brothers in Christ. Yes, we're pastors, but uh, we're just brothers in Christ. And you don't have to make a special appointment. If you want to go visit the White House, Or even if you want to go visit the governor or the mayor or the president at the University of Iowa, you have to make an appointment. And not only that, you may not get that meeting. It depends on your merit. It depends on your resume. It depends on your influence, whether you will even get that meeting at all. See, our ability to meet someone or our invitation to meet with someone is largely based on our resume. Why would the mayor want an audience with me? It it has to be based on my merit and my resume. And if we look at Moses' resume, he does not have a resume that would say he should meet with the creator God. The God who is about to say the whole earth is mine. So let's take a moment and look at this amazing mercy and grace that God would invite Moses to come and commune with him. As we continue on, we continue to see this gracious God and his call to relationship with him. Let's continue on in verse 3. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall say to the house of Jacob, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, Okay, let's stop right there before we look at what he was to tell them. First, they're called the house of Jacob, and then they are called the people of Israel. Right there in one sentence, God is telling us the story of Israel. It started out as one family, Jacob and his 12 sons. It started out as a family, and then it grew into a whole nation of people, and God made them into a nation where they're about to be called a holy nation even. They started out as a family of humble origins, and then through many trials and travails, they are made into the people of Israel, a nation. This, again, is God's amazing work in the lives of his people. 
Let's look at verses four through six. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. We're going to return to these verses because there's a lot said here. God is saying a lot, and we'll revisit this as we continue on. But here God is saying, remember how I delivered you. This will be the foundation of our relationship moving forward. He is telling the Israelites to look back at how he has already been their God, how he has already delivered them, the things on his resume that he has done to be worthy to be their God and to call them into this covenant relationship. And then he tells them, all the earth is mine. This is an incredible claim of monotheism. God is saying, I am the one true God and I made everything. The whole earth is mine. This is radically different from the gods of other religions or other civilizations that have existed where there was a God of all the different elements or, or different things. He is saying, everything is mine. I'm not just the God of the sea or the God of the air or the God of Hades or God of the heavens. The whole earth is mine. He is pointing to his resume and who this God is that is calling them into relationship. Let's look at verses seven through nine. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and said before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. God is inviting them into a covenant. He is saying, here's what I'm inviting you into. But then he is saying, but here is what you are going to do to be a part of this covenant relationship. This two-sided covenant was not unusual. It was something very common in the Near East where two parties would go into a two-sided covenant with one another. And they would sign. They would say, here's the covenant. They would often sign in blood. They would offer their very life as collateral and say, I'm coming into a relationship with this other party, this other tribe, this other king, this other family. So these two-sided covenants were not unusual for the time. But there are some unusual components about this covenant. The first one is one side has all the power. It was usually two powerful entities coming into covenant with one another. But in this covenant, one side had all the power. And he had proven his power time and time again as he delivered his people, as he defeated their enemies, as he took care of their very daily needs in the desert. So one side has all the power. Another component that is different is that one side brought grace to the table, brought grace to the table and even told them from the beginning. And it, it is just amazing as you read through the Old Testament that God continues to say, remember how I delivered you? Remember our covenant? You're going to mess it up again. You're going to go your own way. You're not going to be faithful to me, 
but I am going to continue to provide a way. And I am going to continue to hold this covenant together with my power, with my grace, with my mercy. One last thing is that this God in this covenant invited his people into this covenant where he had all the power and he had all the grace. And for collateral, he says two things. Here he says one, and then he proves throughout time another thing. The first thing is he says, what I bring to the table is everything. The whole earth is mine. That's what I'm bringing to the table. That's my collateral. Not just one thing I own, but everything, because I own it all. And then he is going to say, I will give my very life on your behalf. He hints at this and shows this to Abraham. And this is just a continuation of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, making a people for himself. He says, my life is going to be the one that is ripped apart on your behalf. So that's the kind of covenant relationship that God invites his people into. So we're going to take a look at three things here. We're going to take a look at what God did to form this covenant. We're going to take a look at the conditions of the covenant. And we're going to take a look at who we are in light of the covenant. Don't worry, we're going to get done before six. Everybody's hot. Rain is coming around seven thirty, eight o'clock. So we'll get you out of here by six o'clock. We're going to go through this pretty, pretty quickly. And then you can look back at the notes if we went too fast. So what did God do? As Steve preached last week, the Israelites' worship and relationship with God was primarily about God and who he was. As we look at the way they worshiped, they continually go back to this is who God is. In chapters 15 and 16, their worship was about God. It wasn't about how great they were, but it was about how great their God was because he is the one that had delivered them. So what did God do? We need to start there. The first thing is that he made everything. All the earth is mine. I made everything. I am the creator God. It is all over this language. All the earth is mine. I am the one that has saved you. I am the one that has held you up on eagle's wings and I've brought you to myself. I am the one with all the power. I am the creator. I made you. I know your name. All the earth is mine. He made everything, and he has no equal. He is not some tribal deity. He is the God of the whole earth. So first, he made everything. Second, he delivered them. He delivered them. In Deuteronomy 6, we read this account of their deliverance. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. He says, remember the covenant I made with your ancestors? Remember how I delivered you? And then remember how I provided for you every step of the way. I delivered you and don't forget. 
the Old Testament is just full of that phrase, don't forget. Don't you remember? Remember. It's all over. Even when there's these pronouncements of judgment by the prophets, there's often this phrase, don't you remember or you have forgotten that I made a covenant with your ancestors. I made a way for you in the desert. I delivered you from your enemies. You walked through on dry ground and your enemies got sunk. Remember that God delivered you. What did God do? He saved them. He saved them. Not based on any merit of their own. Again, it was based on his grace and his goodness. Again, as we look at the Israelites, there is nothing in them that says, yep, that is a trophy. Those are the kind of people I want on my team. No, we just continue to see them grumble and complain and doubt and go their own way. And man, when they get into the promised land, if anything, it just ramps up their wickedness. And we see that in the Israelites as we go throughout the Old Testament. God saved them not based on their merit, but because of his covenant, because of his grace, because of his mercy. This makes me think of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. In Romans chapter 5, Paul reminds us what our state was, what state we were in when we were saved. It says, while you were enemies of God, while you were weak, while you were going your own way, enemies of God, while you were still sinning at just the right time, Christ died for you. Lastly, what did God do? He brought them to himself. This is the, what they deliver, he delivered them for. He delivered them from something, but he delivered them to this covenant relationship. And he had a plan to make them into his people. As we look to the New Testament, as we look at our lives, if we are in Christ, we see that Jesus saves us, but he brings us into a relationship where we are in Christ, the Spirit is in us, and we are in a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father that still says, all the earth is mine. We are saved, but then we are given life in the Spirit as we are made into his people, as we are made more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. This fall, we are going to do a whole series through John 13 through 17, the gospel of John 13 through 17, where we will look at Jesus's words, where he talks about what life in Christ, what life in the spirit, what the abundant life looks like. We'll go through John 13 through 17 this fall. Leading up to that, we would like you to start tomorrow a 40-day prayer emphasis. This is something that we want to do as a church. If you look on that same link where you found the lyrics and the sermon notes, you'll also find a link to a PDF that walks you through 40 days of scripture and prayer. And we want to encourage you to join the rest of your church family in praying for the next 40 days. Each day there's a different prayer emphasis, but by and large, what it is trying to do is unite our hearts to God. 
so we are receptive and ready to hear the words of Christ as we jump into our fall series. So that starts tomorrow. You can look up the PDF. Uh, There's also instructions online on how to follow a text and send a text in, and you'll get a daily text reminder about those. You can print off the PDF and put it on your fridge. I know my family is doing all of the, the above, so we do not forget. But please join us in preparing your heart for what God will do this fall. God brings us to himself to have a fruitful relationship, and he says, I'll provide everything that you need. Just as the Egyptian or the Israelites were invited into that kind of relationship, we are invited into that kind of relationship in Christ. So what, what did God do? He made everything. He delivered his people. He saved his people, and he brought us to himself. Now let's look at the conditions, the conditions of this covenant. The most important thing to note of this covenant is that these conditions that are put on the covenant, it's very important that we recognize that God already delivered and saved his people. He is the one that initiated this relationship with them. And he puts conditions around it. He says, if you walk in them, you will be blessed. And we see that that is very true. We see it in our own lives, but we also see it in God's people as we read the Old Testament. When they walked in his ways, they were provided for. They were blessed even when they were marginalized, even when they were enslaved, even when they were exiled. When they walked in his ways, they were blessed. And when they went their own way, there was death. There was corruption. There was collateral damage that was far-reaching. But this covenant relationship is based on what God has done for them. He didn't say, walk in these ways, and then I will save you. He said, because I have initiated a loving relationship with you and saved and delivered you, now walk in these ways. Deuteronomy 6.24 puts it this way, The Lord commanded us to do all of these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are on this day. Deuteronomy is saying he's giving us the law, he's giving us commandments and statutes to preserve us and to keep us alive. As a parent, this is very real. Some of the rules I have for my boys are literally to keep them alive. Not running at the pool, staying away from unleashed dogs in the neighborhood, Don't jump off the shed. That happened recently, and there were bad ramifications. My 10-year-old is still in pain from jumping off the shed. I give them uh, laws, I give them rules, commandments to literally keep them alive. But the God of the universe does the same for us. He's trying to preserve us. He's trying to keep us alive physically, spiritually, relationally. But here's the difference. I am an earthly fallen father and he owns everything. He gives his people the law. He gives us the law because he cares for us and he wants to preserve our life. Exodus 19.4 that we already looked at says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. If we think about an eagle, an eagle has an elaborate nest that it keeps its babies in, and it keeps them safe. And when 
one of those babies crawls out of the nest, it flies down and picks it up with its wing and it returns it. In Deuteronomy 32, he goes on to describe it a little bit more colorfully. And he says, I bore you on eagle's wings and I hover over you like an eagle hovers over their young that then spreads out its wings to catch its offspring. That is the care in which God has saved us, delivered us, and taken care of us. This is the God who has saved us. So there are conditions around the relationship, but they are based on his love, his care, his preservation for our life. And he is the one who initiated everything, inviting us into that relationship. So in light of these things, who are we? Three things. It's right in the text. I didn't have to be creative to come up with these. They are right there in verse five. The first one, who are we? We are a treasured possession. We are a treasured possession. The language that's being used here is for uh, a king's treasure. A king has lots of treasure, but there is certain treasure that is set aside that will not be used for anything. It will not be used for collateral. It will not be used to buy anything, purchase kingdoms, pay people off. It will not be used for anything. It is set aside as a treasured possession. It's not going to get lost. It's not going to get mixed up in the other treasure. It is set aside. It is a treasured possession. That's what we, God's people, are being called. A treasured possession. In Exodus chapter 4, the Lord calls Israel my firstborn son. My firstborn son. All of my kids being born was special, but I will never forget what it was like to see my firstborn son just so overwhelmed with love, a little bit of fear, but a lot of love and affection towards him. Israel, my firstborn son. We are his treasured possession. Number two, we're a kingdom of priests. We're a kingdom of priests. A priest is a mediator between God and man. There to represent the people, to make atoning sacrifice for the people to God. They are to listen and hear from God and talk to the people about what God said. They were allowed to go into the most holy place. They had a connection with the people, but they also had a connection and they would hear from God. We are called a kingdom of priests. God's people were called to represent him. They were called to hear from him and then speak a message to the nations for him. We are being called here a kingdom of priests. That word kingdom is referring to a collective of people. So as we sit here, as uh, a lot of us are from the West, or a lot of us are, are Americans, as we hear this, we think of 55 priests sitting here. That's not the language that was being used. While that may be the case that is, there's 55 priests represented here, if Christ's, if Christ's spirit, if his spirit is inside of you, if you're in Christ. But what this is talking about is a collective, a kingdom of priests. That's what the language is talking about here. If we think about these priestly duties, one of them was to make sacrifices. And then we'll see here in a few chapters even that they would then sprinkle the blood 
on the people or the altar to cleanse them from their sins. If we think about the story of Israel, they really started these priestly duties as soon as they started making animal sacrifices. They definitely acted out these priestly duties at Passover. They sacrificed the lamb and they put the blood over the doorposts. And that was a priestly act. As we think about that, we see here that God is calling them a kingdom of priests. And the first priestly acts that they did were at that Passover meal. As we think about that, I want to just take a a quick note here to note that this was talking about men, women, and children. Men, women, and children. And if we think about that first Passover, the women were the ones that were preparing the meal, that were taking that blood and either putting it over the doorposts or giving it to the head of the household. So this is relevant to us as a church because over the last four years, we have been working on what it looks like for our church to be a kingdom of priests. Don't worry, we're not getting the collar and all that. We're not going there. But what we have been looking at is what does it look like for men and women to serve in the church together? And what are the implications of what it looks like that God has called us all to be a kingdom of priests? So over the last four years, your elders have been going through and studying this subject and studying what God's word has to say about women in scripture as well. And we are still maintaining that the office of elder and pastor is reserved for men. But to this point at Grace Community Church, that's the only thing that we have been clear on. And outside of that, we have left a lot of ambiguity that has not helped anyone. And so we are working right now um, Your elders and some staff are working on uh, a paper that walks through the biblical theology of men and women serving in the church together because we want everyone to know that they are a kingdom of priests. Because when we look at God's word, we see God speaking to and through men and women for the edification of the church. So we're not changing what we believe about um, pastors and elders. You're going to continue to see men preach. But outside of that, you're going to receive a lot more clarity on what it looks like to be a kingdom of priests and men and women serving together. We're called to be priests as a mediator between God and man, and we are called to be reconciled to our God and then be reconcilers to the nations. That's what God is calling us to do here as he calls us a kingdom of priests. Lastly, we are called a holy nation. We are the people of God are called a holy nation, again, not based on their merit. They are brought from humble origins and they are sinful people, but they are brought into relationship by a holy God. They are called holy because their God is holy and the whole earth is his and he calls them holy. We are a holy nation because God says we are holy and his work in us makes us holy in Christ. This is the first use of the word holy in the Bible referring to people. God is using a word that has been reserved for him and his creation and he is using it for mankind. He is calling them holy when clearly they have not been holy. All of this is a foreshadowing of what was to come for God's people and for us. We, like them, need to be delivered from sin and our enemies. We, like them, need to be saved. We need to be brought into a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. 
We need his spirit dwelling inside of us. We need to be called holy when we do not feel or act holy. We need to feel as if we are his treasured possession. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that we are a kingdom of priests. We need to remember that we are a holy nation called to be reconciled to our God, to be reconcilers to the nations. 1 Peter 2.9, this is in the New Testament. Peter says, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a people for his own possession to proclaim his excellencies. That is what he has called his people into. So what should be different about us if we are in Christ and his spirit is in us? We should remember that what, what we have been delivered from. We should live out what we have been delivered to. And we need to proclaim that we know some good news. We have been delivered from our sin and our enemies. And we have been delivered to life in Christ And he has brought us into a loving relationship, called us holy, and said, I will give you everything that you need. And then we get called into his rescue mission to proclaim his excellencies to the end of the earth. We get to have an identity, a call, a mission that is bigger than us and not based on our merit. What an amazing God that has invited us into relationship with him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the shade. Thank you for holding out on the rain. Thank you that we could be here together. Thank you. We want to be your people. God, thank you for what you have done to make us your people. And God, we want to ask you to continue to use us for your purposes. God, we want to live our life with our plans in open fists. We want to live a life that says, Lord willing, we will gather together next week. God, we are so aware of our dependence upon you. But God, thank you that you have delivered us and made us your people and you've given us a mission. We're just so thankful for everything that you have done. Amen.